This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, long live the Tory fringe. John Crace reviews last week's conservative comedy hour. Johannes Radebay on how he fought the bullies and became a strictly superstar. And Zoe Williams reveals how to spot a liar via 10 essential tells. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Before we begin, just a warning. There's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now, Tory Culture Secretary Lucy Fraser makes Nadine Dorries look positively articulate, says John Grace. But this week, she was just the warm-up act for the hilarious mayoral candidate, Susan Hall. Read by Jonathan Keeble. What's the purpose of Rishi Sunak's government? It clearly isn't to govern. The Tories have long since given up on that. Nothing really works anymore, and Sunak has little to offer but the promise of a few general election giveaways. But his outriders are clearly on a mission to plug the gap with entertainment. Banish those Monday morning January blues with the Conservatives' comedy hour. The revenge of the idiocracy. Step forward, Lucy Fraser. In a previous life, Fraser was, by all accounts, a successful barrister. Someone even thought her sharp or posh enough to make her a KC. Though what that says about all the other lawyers whom she beat to the promotion doesn't bear mentioning. There's no easy way of saying this, but Lucy just isn't very bright. If the election doesn't work out so well for her, you can't see many people hurrying to her chambers asking her to take up their case. As luck would have it, though, Fraser is now our culture secretary. Words you thought you would never say. The least you would expect would be someone who could talk in fully formed sentences. Coherent thought would be nice, too. Come back, Nadine Doris! Even at her most demented, even when she was totally pissed Mad Nad was more articulate than Fraser on last Monday's media round, almost as though Lucy was auditioning for her own stand-up show, 
a rival to Rosie Holt. For reasons best known to themselves, every Tory culture secretary seems to have it in for the BBC. It could just be jealousy. The BBC is far more highly valued and trusted than the Tories. We Brits could easily do without the services of another second-rate minister, but we'd be pissed off to be asked to give up our guilty pleasures of the traitors and silent witness. No matter. Fraser had managed to get hold of another shoddy piece of research that claimed the BBC was not impartial and was determined to spin it out into a comedy gig on the airwaves. A helpful suggestion. Most stand-ups learn their routines before they take them out on tour. They don't just make it up as they go along. But Lucy knows better. All she had done was skim the headline findings that the BBC were all lefty bastards before leaving the house in the morning and had decided to ad-lib the rest. It didn't go well. Fraser clearly thought she would be on home turf in the Sky Studios, that a rival broadcaster would like nothing more than to indulge in a bit of communal bee-bashing. The idea that a news source might have independent news values clearly hadn't occurred to her. She clearly thought everything was like GB news. Kay Burley cut to the chase. Do you think the BBC is biased? she asked up front. Um, I- I'm looking at this from um, the point of view as culture secretary said Fraser, in her trademark high-pitched panicky nasal whine, much the same as Sunak. Burley looked around for a gun, anything to put herself out of the misery of spending another second with this half-wit. "'I know you are,' she said. "'That's why we've invited you onto the programme. Poor Lucy. Yet to make the connection between her role as Cabinet Minister and being invited onto the TV, she thought it was just a coincidence.' Then we got down to the details, or rather the lack of them. Fraser did think the BBC was biased because it had apologised for a mistake about the bombing of a Gaza hospital. Her dishonesty was transparent, because you could tell that what she was itching to say but daren't was that the BBC hated the Tories, which some members and presenters probably do. Though equally, the boss class and some other presenters are very Tory-friendly, which suggests that, overall, things are a lot more balanced than at GBB's. "'So where's your evidence?' asked Burley. Fraser looked confused, startled even. "'Evidence? What was that?' "'Yep, she's a lawyer, all right. Um, "'The evidence was that some people perceived the BBC to be biased,' she offered. Burley gently pointed out that perceptions were not evidence, and invited her to have another go. Still nothing. Eventually, Burley just gave up, spitting her out in disgust. Weirdly, Fraser repeated this interview across all the networks. Someone should tell her there's a difference between an audience laughing at you and with you. Still, Fraser was just the warm-up act on LBC. There, we got a full half-hour of Comedy Central with the Tory candidate for London Mayor, the never-to-be-forgotten Susan Hall. Quite possibly the stupidest person in the entire capital. The Conservatives must have chosen her for the lols. There's no other explanation. First off, Hall insisted that Sadiq Khan had saved up some money to give Londoners a pre-election boost. Wait until she finds out what Sunak and Jeremy Hunt have in store. 
Then she got totally confused over the repairs to Hammersmith Bridge. The hold-up was because it was owned by two councils. A listener had to call in to point out that this was a lie. Since 1985, it's been owned solely by Hammersmith and Fulham Council, though Hall may think that counts as two. But Sue was only getting started. She was definitely going to give the police a pay rise, though she didn't know where the money was coming from. The presenter, Nick Ferrari, asked her if she knew what the basic salary for an officer was. No idea, she said proudly. But guessing? £30,000, which is the equivalent of £60,000. Honestly, no one had any idea what she was talking about, least of all her. It's £36,000, said Ferrari. Her ignorance was bliss and total. She didn't know what a bus fare was. Couldn't give a toss. She never took one. Only travelled by trains. So, nothing to do with her. And she was unrepentant about her tweets about Trump having the 2020 election stolen from him because she always spent a lot of time on Twitter liking tweets that she didn't really like. Ferrari looked like he needed a self-help group by the end. We all did. But hey, the LBC phone lines all lit up, with agents looking to sign Dim Sue up. This had been laugh-a-minute radio, far better than anything Radio 4 could offer, and no one was laughing louder than Sadiq. Imagine Hall as mayor of one of the world's biggest cities. Even my dog could do better. And still the fun wasn't over. As hours later, <sighs> Liz Truss announced she would be making her comeback in February. The Edinburgh Fringe is dead. Long live the Tory Fringe. Our cup runneth over. That was The Tory Sending the Clowns and Bashing the BBC Has Never Been So Laughable by John Crace. Read by Jonathan Keeble. Next. When Johannes Radebe began performing as a boy in South Africa, he was told he would never win. Here, he tells Amina Sena how he eventually overcame homophobia and homelessness to become a beloved dance pioneer. Read by Damala Adelaja. If you watched Strictly Come Dancing in 2018, chances are Johannes Radebe caught your eye. He wasn't yet known... But, through the group dances performed by the professionals, it became clear that Radebe was a star who couldn't be contained for long. A year later, he was given his first celebrity partner, the actor Catherine Tilsley, and performed the series' first same-sex dance, in heels no less, with his fellow dancer Graziano De Prima. Voguing in black stilettos alongside De Prima felt like my coming-out party, he says. There was something very empowering about saying, this is who I am. I said to myself, enough of the shame, enough of hiding, just enough. By 2021, when he was dancing with the baker John Waite as one half of the show's first male couple, Radebe had become one of Strictly's most beloved stars. Leaving aside his stage outfits, a green beaded jumpsuit was a highlight in the most recent series, Radebe has been known to step out in heels and a ball gun for special occasions, such as when Strictly picked up a National Television Award last year. Today, though, he is dressed in sportswear, a big quilted coat protecting him from the cold. A few days ago, 
Radebay, who's South African, took the life in the UK test in preparation to settle here. It was hard, he says, but he passed. I got out of there thinking I might be deported, he says, smiling. With the test and the months of studying over, Radebay has thrown himself into creating his third dance show, House of Jojo, which begins its UK tour at the end of March. It's a stretch to say that a piece of immigration bureaucracy inspired the show, but it made him wonder about the overlaps. What is the history of House of Jojo? What are its values? I really wanted to reflect the world I live in, he says. People have been given opportunities by coming to this country. It is made up of a lot of people that come from outside. As long as you obey the law, you're guaranteed democracy and freedom. There is space to exist. Radebay is the draw, of course. But House of Jojo is about bringing others along. He has assembled a diverse cast of dancers, including some from places where it's hard to get a UK visa. Others have been denied opportunities in the past because they don't fit the traditional idea of how a dancer should look. It's been a beautiful process because I'm not alone during this, he says of his creative team. Radebez says he wouldn't be where he is today without the people who helped him. His local community were chipped in for transport to dance competitions. His coaches, who spent hours nurturing him. The power brokers who gave him chances once his career was quick-stepping along. I'm not blind to the fact that it was everybody's effort, he says. Radebay grew up in Zamdullah, a mining township in the Free State in the final years of apartheid. He was too young to be much aware of it. He didn't question why, when driving through white suburbs in a minibus on the way to church, some people had huge houses and swimming pools behind barbed wire fences, while his family lived in a small bungalow, in which he shared a room with his older sister and his grandmother. You just think, this is where I come from and this is where they come from, he says. Now, understanding the fear, to know that our parents lived in fear while they were raising kids, that still affects our society. There's a gap that needs to be bridged, and soon, because it's dire what's happening to youngsters in South Africa. So, have I experienced apartheid? No. But do I know the effects of it? I see them every day. As a child, did he know he was different from other boys? From the start, he says with a laugh. In terms of mannerisms, things I was interested in, Barbies were my thing. He loved to make clothes for his sister's dolls and dress them. When his father, who worked for Coca-Cola, gave the children money to spend in a shop, Radebabe chose his own doll. When his parents discovered this, it was met with silence, but not shaming. That came when Radebay started school. He was marked out as a sissy boy. Sometimes, he would be chased home by boys and threatened with violence. Even adults would verbally abuse him. Conservative beliefs, he says. An African is an African and a man is a man. That is my Zulu uncle's talking. Later, they would constantly ask him when he would find a wife. It's not going to happen, he smiles. Those were daily conversations. There were glimmers of light. His mother was supportive and he made friends with two other boys who were going through the same thing. But mostly it was about survival. I used to hide a lot. I would run away from anything threatening. He felt relaxed with his sister or his friends around. But the minute people disappeared, I never felt safe. 
It must have been frightening, I say. Frightening. Yes, he says softly. One of his friends was beaten up so badly after being spotted playing with dolls of Radebay that he missed school. It is no exaggeration to say that Dan saved Radebay. He stumbled into a class at the local recreation hall by accident when he was seven and fell in love. It rebuilt his self-esteem and confidence, and his growing reputation as a dancer offered a level of protection from his attackers. It also provided an outlet when his family life fell apart and his parents separated. Radebez says it gave him a sense of belonging, a sense of worth. To get applause made me feel like somebody for however long it lasted. I knew there was a world where I didn't have to feel ashamed because people understood where I came from. When I went back into the real world, everything seemed so bland. That dance world was sparkly, kind. It was accommodating. Radebez started competing in Latin and ballroom competitions, raising money from neighbours to pay for transport and accommodation. His world was opening, but so were his eyes. It was the first time he really saw the inequalities of race and class. Competitions weren't based on talent alone. Grooming and presentation were vital. The couples with better, more expensive costumes, almost always white, would take the top prizes. He remembers, after coming forth, asking one of the judges for advice on how he and his partner might improve. I remember him saying, you will never win. Look at you. You look unkempt. And to my partner, your body type is wrong for this dance. As one of the top couples in their province, Radebe and his partner had been invited to compete internationally. But that was financially impossible. Some rival couples paid for private tuition with adjudicators before competitions. But that wasn't an option. It felt as though kids from townships could never win. If I had to dwell on that, I wouldn't have survived this industry or this world, he says. That is why there's so few of us. But it was painful. There's a million times when I felt, why am I even trying? They were often the only black couple to make the finals. My coach used to say, listen to the audience. They will let you know whether you won or not. Radebe and his partner would get the loudest cheers, but not the highest scores. His partner walked away. She said, I don't want to do this. It's not fun. I was stupid enough to hold on because I didn't know what to do without this. He laughs, but he is downplaying his determination. Was he always so strong? He takes a long pause. No. I've had people that loved me hard, that showed me that whatever I wanted in life, I could achieve, and that's what got me through it, he says. It was partly about being young in the nascent post-apartheid era. He was constantly told how lucky he was. You were reminded with breakfast, lunch and dinner every time your mother had an opportunity to remind you that you have been afforded an opportunity to make something of your life. Did it feel like pressure or empowering? It felt both and it left a lot of people crippled. I look at my own family and the lack of education, lack of opportunity has led to a desperation in people. It does boil down to you as an individual to make a choice that I'm not going to accept what has been dealt to me. There are people that have risen above that. 
and there are people that haven't been able to. We're going to take a short break now. We'll be right back with the second half of this article in a moment. Don't go anywhere. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Have you ever wondered why you just can't put down your phone? Whether flying will ever be carbon neutral? Or how best to look after your gut microbiome? The Guardian's Science Weekly podcast explores the latest science and environment news and answers the big questions. Like, should we really let Elon Musk connect our brains to computers? Just search for Science Weekly wherever you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, back to Johannes Radebeer. Radebeer's mother was persuaded to let him leave home at 13 and move in with a dance coach couple in a different province. They had spotted his potential and could offer him bigger opportunities in nearby Johannesburg. He hoped going to a new school would be better, but the homophobic bullying was worse. I was trying to stand my ground and stand up to my bullies, but I would be bashed, he says. Once, he was viciously attacked in the school toilets by a group of boys. On the day of his final exam, he remembers telling himself that he never had to return. I wanted to leave that world far behind, and I have. He was cast in a stage show, then became a dance teacher in Johannesburg, but he was earning so little that he couldn't afford an apartment. Instead, he would pay friendly taxi drivers a small amount to sleep in the back of their cabs, or he would secretly stay overnight in the dance studio. Going to gay clubs, Radebay became aware that there was often a transactional relationship between older white men and young black men. Sometimes, he would ask to stay in a spare room, but made it clear there would be nothing in it for them. Often, they let him. When one of these men tried to sexually assault him, Radabade escaped. His life, he decided, had become too unstable and dangerous. A friend encouraged him to audition for a job as a dancer on cruise ships. He spent the next seven years performing. Then he was cast in South Africa's version of Strictly, but couldn't let go of the fact that he hadn't yet won a South African dance title. I wasn't going to let those adjudicators tell me that I was never going to win, and that's exactly what I did. 
I won the national Latin title not once, but twice, he smiles. As a reigning champion, he fired off a confident email to the producers of Burn the Floor, a successful ballroom and Latin show of which he was desperate to be part. Touring with that show, he caught the eye of the producers of British Strictly and was asked to join the cast. Being invited onto the original show felt like validation. It felt like I was being rewarded for sticking it out. It has changed his life, he says, and his family's life. I know that my family is okay, and that is what I've always wanted, he says. Radabe's father died when he was a teenager. He has always considered himself his family's breadwinner. Recently, he was able to build his mother a house. It had always been his dream to dance with another man. When he started dancing at seven, he asked if he could dance with a boy and was told no. You can imagine what it did for my shame, thinking that I always had to hide that about me. I've always asked myself, what would that feel like? The fact that we got to do it. I knew how many people would have looked at that moment and felt seen. In the 2021 series, he and Waite, not only the first male couple, but also the first gay partnership, reached the final. In any other year, they would have won. They were beaten by the luminous Rose Ailing Ellis. I challenge anyone to watch their last dance, completely joyful and free, and not well up. I've seen what that has done for so many people, and I hear the story still today, says Radebe. That's how I know that we've left the world a better place. Just by doing what we do, it's humbling, and it feels great to be part of history in that regard. I would have loved to exist in a world where I didn't have to be ashamed of myself. There was never anything wrong with me, yet the society around me made me believe there was. To have such support from the public felt like a hug, he says. After that, you couldn't touch me. I can't tell you what it did for my confidence. Thanks to John as well. My relationships have changed since then with people in my life that are close to me. His uncle stopped asking when he would be finding a wife. This isn't to say it has been easy. He is careful now with social media because the abuse got so bad. People would tell me and John that we were disgusting, that I should never come back to Africa, that I'm a disgrace. He has learned not to engage and to try to ignore it. I've created a world where that has no impact on me anymore. It's not me that has a problem. If they're willing to learn, come to House of Jojo. I'll educate you. What I do and how I live my life can never be based on what other people think. I want to create a world that I see in my head, and it's of love and of kindness. Later, I spend a lovely afternoon rewatching clips of Radebe dancing. It's a strange alchemy of precision, energy and lightness. But mostly I think about the little boy, bullied, ashamed and disadvantaged, who just kept going. Honestly, never in my wildest dreams, he had said earlier about his career. None of it was planned, and there were plenty of people who told him he would never make it. I pinch myself because I'm like, how? But I've got incredible people that hold me up. That's how I survived. It was never about money. It was never about being known. I've always danced because it brought me happiness and joy. 
That was, I said, enough of the shame. How Johannes Radebe fought the bullies and became a strictly superstar by Amina Sena. Read by Damola Adelaja. Finally, The Traitors has shown just how adept some people are at lying. Here, an ex-FBI agent, a psychologist and a fraud investigator share their best tips for detecting dishonesty with Zoe Williams. Read by Jonathan Keeble. 22 people in a castle. Claudia Winkleman hamming it up like crazy. A number of silly challenges. A chunk of money sitting at the centre, almost glowing. And human nature laid bare. To try to pick apart exactly what makes the traitors so compelling would be to miss the point, like trying to analyse the ingredients of a Krispy Kreme donut. As enjoyable as it is, though, the show gets more infuriating with each episode. I don't want to point fingers, still less give spoilers, so let's keep this broad. Why are they, the faithful, all so stupid? Why can't they tell when they're being lied to? It's so obvious. I asked three experts how to spot a lie, and why most people can't. First, Dr Linda Papadopoulos, a psychologist, author and broadcaster, whom people of a certain vintage may remember as the standout discovery of the first season of Big Brother. Reality TV was in its infancy, so watching ordinary people interact under a microscope was fascinating in itself. But Papadopoulos, the show's resident psychologist, added an almost superhuman level of insight into the contestants' feelings. She was like a mind-reader. Second, Joe Navarro is the author of What Everybody Is Saying, insights into non-verbal cues and tells gleaned from his career as an FBI agent. Gabrielle Stewart, the third, is a retired insurance investigator who works as a fraud consultant for the industry. This trio don't always agree, but... Seriously, you wouldn't want to lie to any of them. Here are their ten tips for spotting a liar. Watch for self-soothing gestures. The problem with the myth of detecting deception is that since the groundbreaking work of Paul Ekman, a psychologist whose visual test, Pictures of Facial Affect, was published in 1976, and all the researchers that came after him, We know that humans are no better than chance at detecting deception, says Navarro. But that doesn't mean you can't read anything into people's expressions and behaviours. What the human body does, and it does it exquisitely, is display psychological discomfort in real time, he says. King Charles, he's always playing with his cufflinks. This is how he deals with social anxiety. Prince Harry... He's always buttoning the button that's already buttoned, another comforting behaviour. Facial touching is known as a pacifier, a way to soothe yourself under stress. Right now, you are covering your suprasternal notch, says Navarro as our video call starts. He's right, in the sense that I've always keenly felt the jeopardy of the first few seconds of an interview. If you make a mess of that, the whole thing is ruined. So... There is the first principle. Everything someone does with their hands and their face says something. Now you have to figure out what. Probe areas where you detect psychological discomfort. Navarro recalls a search for a fugitive during his FBI days. 
Interviewing the man's mother, he asked if she had seen her son. She said no, and was plainly nervous, but there was no way to connect the anxiety to the answer. She could have been telling the truth and simply been unsettled by the appearance of two FBI agents on her doorstep. He changed tack and asked if it was possible that her son was sneaking into the house while she was at work. She said, No, that's not possible at all, displaying a nervous tell, covering her neck in this instance. But there was no reason for that, right? All she had to say was, I don't know. So, the non-verbal show of nerves, combined with the illogical answer, hinted at deception. Sure enough, the man was in the house. Don't take obvious gestures at face value. Some striking non-verbal tells are rooted in archaic human self-preservation. We cover our mouths when we see something shocking or horrible because it prevents the casting of our scent, which predators can pick up on, says Navarro. The problem is that the more obvious the gesture, the easier it is to plan for and mimic. So every time they vote out an innocent player on the traitors, all the faithful cover their mouths in horror. But so do the traitors. Big set-piece events, where everyone is making the same face or gesture, probably won't tell you very much. Look for mismatch. Papadopoulos picks up on the space between the non-verbal and the verbal, the incongruity between words and gestures. You're nodding, but saying no. Stuart listens for acoustic variants in speech, where pitch and tone change. Lying people will pad a story with elements of truth, which is probably smart, except that when they come to the falsehoods, they speed up and speak at a higher pitch, says Stuart. The voice is saying, I'm in cognitive overload. Learn to receive, not transmit. The ability to actively listen, which is what psychologists do, is surprisingly rare. A lot of people are thinking of what they're going to say next, rather than listening, Papadopoulos says. We also forget how much of ourselves we bring to the interaction. If we're stressed or anxious, it's harder to detect or decode stress in others. Papadopoulos describes falling for a scam when she was in the middle of a family crisis. I write about these things. I know my stuff. But in that moment, I was duped. If I was on my game, that would have been much less likely. That's the whole basis of psychology. We think through our emotions, and that moderates the quality of our thinking. Don't ignore the impact your tone is having on the conversation. Memo to the traitor's Diane. If you come across as accusatory, that affects how people react, Navarro says. I never did that, as it puts people on the defence, and it begins to mask behaviours that I need to observe. Don't jump to conclusions, either. Classic ways to spot a liar, such as vagueness or buying time, Papadopoulos says, might mean something completely different. It might just mean that they weren't really listening, she says. If you decide too quickly that you have uncovered deception, it gates off other possible explanations. Get them to tell their side of the story. Stuart, who did her insurance investigation work by phone, says, The structure of the account is key. You wouldn't necessarily do this in person when you're speaking to somebody, but any story will have a beginning, a middle and an end. It's normally 30% build-up, 
40% content, 30% afterthoughts and reflections. An untruthful account won't stick to that structure, because they don't really want to tell you that 40%. The most common structure of a lie will be 80% build-up, then they'll tell you what happened really, really quickly, then they'll want to get it over with. I would record an event using timelines and bullet points on landscape paper, then draw a line where I believe I've gone from beginning to middle to end. Almost every fraudulent account will have a very long beginning, bugger all middle, and bugger all end. Memory blamers are a flag. When something significant happens, it's very unusual to forget it. Even if it has been misremembered or misperceived, there won't be a big hole in the memory where that detail should be. Listen for tenses and dissociation. We use completely different language when we're telling lies, says Stuart. A really famous example is President Nixon. He was asked straight out, did you know about Watergate? And his answer was, the president would do no such thing. First, he's got dissociation, which is very common. In an untruthful account, there's a lack of I and my, because we want to push the lie away from ourselves. Then he slipped tenses. A truthful person whose car has been stolen, for example, will say, I left it here, came back an hour later, and it was gone. An untruthful account might slip into the present continuous, such as, I'm walking down the path and I'm looking for my car, thinking, for example. Be alive to odd noises or random words. Stuart talks about emotional leakage. A liar might randomly start laughing, but it won't sound like mirth. Time-filling sounds are common. It's an additional cognitive load saying untruthful things, she says. It's like patting your head and rubbing your stomach at the same time. So they'll be on high alert, and they can't bear silence. You'll hear coughing, or strings of words that don't need to be said. Allied to this is non-committal language, or linguistic hedging, words such as probably and possibly. They're like disclaimers. I don't want to commit myself with this language. Ask character questions. In the 80s, my dad, who was a prison psychologist, devised some recruitment tests for the police that were designed to establish whether candidates were honest. One of the progressions was, Are you married? Have you ever had an affair? Have you ever thought about having an affair? If you answered yes to the first, it didn't matter what you said to the second, as long as you didn't answer no to the third, because everyone's thought about it. To apply this to the traitors, a player could ask of another, Do you find Zack annoying? If they say no, it doesn't prove that they are a traitor, but they are certainly the kind of person who lies. Ask yourself, are you looking through the right end of the telescope? Every one of these clues, verbal, non-verbal and in-between, relies on something. The liar's discomfort. Not everyone will feel discomforted by mendacity. Some people will enjoy it. We know that 1% of any given population, here in America it may be way more, are psychopaths, says Navarro. These people can lie all day long. There are structures in their prefrontal cortex that just don't function. Added to that, 4% of the population is antisocial. These are people who live by criminal activity, he says. 
Even if they weren't born to deceive, they will be habituated to it. Many people have to lie for their jobs. Navarro mentions spies and doctors, but makes the broader point that we all use lying as a tool of social survival. Inevitably, some of us will end up quite good at it. But what are we trying to survive? We want to remain members of the group, and we fear expulsion. In a culture where lying is prized, politics, the traitors, the act of lying might make you come across as more confident rather than less. So, if you cross-reference the verbal and non-verbal cues, then reverse-engineered the tests to become reasonably good at identifying an honest, nervous person, you could figure out who was lying by a process of elimination. Even if they were psychopathically good at it, that wouldn't matter. In the traitors, and in life, what will undo you is letting yourself become certain on the basis of too little information or ambiguous evidence. I looked at 261 DNA exonerations in the US, Navarro says. All the police officers thought that they could detect deception, but not one of them could detect the truth. In fact, none of the men were guilty. That was How to Spot a Liar. 10 Essential Tales from Random Laughter to Copycat Gestures by Zoe Williams. Read by Jonathan Keeble. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles are read by Jonathan Keeble and Damola Adelaja and presented by me, Savannah Ayode-Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. The executive producer is Ellie Bury. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.